Welcome to Credo's Biblical Theology Podcast, where biblical theology is placed in conversation with the great tradition for the benefit of theologians, preachers, and the church. Uh, our guest today is Ched Spellman. He serves as the Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Cedarville University and is, more importantly, of course, a, a happy husband and father. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the role of backgrounds uh, and how it plays, uh, what kind of role it should play in the interpretational process. Okay, so I I teach a number of undergrad students. You do as well. I I always try to develop uh, a little bit of what we're talking about. I do I suspend them in their exegetical processes at least during my class anyway to push mm-hmm. backgrounds more towards the back of the process. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I try to kind of get out of them a little bit is to only view um, backgrounds as I need to know the date, the author, uh, the cultural background. Though that is, of course, what we mean, but rather you haven't nailed this book if you know the date that it was delivered or something like that. Or um, you haven't nailed the exegetical process if you know um, that Malachi wrote Malachi. It's like, okay, that 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 is that's helping you down the road. But rather, um, a lot of the Bible honestly doesn't even supply you with that information. So how should we think about that? This is this is God and his providence and his kindness. He's given us the scriptures. He's revealed himself to us. But a lot of the scriptures do not indicate um, exactly when uh, they were delivered, when they were written, and especially who the author was. Um, So how do we how do we think about that? Is God like holding out on us or or is he um, what what are we supposed to do with it? Um, Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, One of the things that's sometimes surprising is for people that. uh, some of our, especially the Old Testament narrative, uh, one of its features is that they're typically anonymous because mm-hmm. they are a, a different genre than epistles, mm-hmm. uh, which typically mark authorship in a particular way. Um, so the fact that um, texts like that are in the canon um, force us to ask questions about setting and historical background information you know, in a different way. Um, and kind of drawing from what we were just talking about, I'll try to answer more succinctly <laughs> from here on out. Uh, but the, um, uh, a lot of the, it, you know, historical reconstruction by necessity is built on, you know, whole superstructures are built on, um, little specific pieces of, of evidence. Um, yeah. so that's something to keep in mind, uh, when we're talking. It's kind of like <laughs> a Jenga. Uh, the, the Jenga game, right? Uh, you can build this great tower, and I mean, I remember some Jenga competitions where, man, this is a this Jenga tower is uh, just magnificent. Uh, it goes all the way to the ceiling, but still, <laughs> even within that magnificent structure, um, I know this because my kids love to uh, tear down each other's uh, constructions. But you wiggle just one little block at the bottom of that. And that entire superstructure that's built on that piece of information will come tumbling down. Right. Uh, at the very least, need to be you know, shifted. Um, right. So, and I think this in the New Testament as well. Like the presence of a text like Hebrews, where the authorship is uh, debated, uh, primarily because it's uh, it's an anonymous text. Um, though I, I. Like to think of the author as the barista, yeah, Hebrews. Yes, um, so I think we know Praise that name. Uh, but the fact that 
there's an anonymous text in some of the Old Testament uh, narrative texts. The fact that we do have anonymous text in the scripture, scriptural collection, forces us to think about um, those books in a, in a different way, in a different mode. Mm-hmm. Um, so we say things like, well, we don't know who the author is, the identity of the author, but we know several things from his work, that he was a reader of the scriptures, that he knew the people he was talking to, that he was a you know second generation believer, all of these different things that he cared about covenant and he cared about the proclamation of the gospel and the flow of redemptive history, things like that. Um, and we're gleaning those things, which are essentially background information for understanding the text, but we're drawing them from the text itself. Um, so that's, uh, in some ways, that's a, a technique that we can use even when we do know who the author is. Um, so whereas uh, in an anonymous text, uh, some readers are, are nervous because they don't have that uh, Sometimes we don't think about the fact that we should be doing that even when we have a named author like Paul. Like we still have to answer the question of how much of Paul's biography that we know about should we use to um, interpret a particular passage. We still have to we have still have to do that particular type of study. And some of Paul's uh, letters as well give us indications in the text that we should put some buffers on our historical reconstruction. So, you know, some of, a lot of Paul's letters are co-authored, you know, Timothy, Silas, Sosthenes. Um, um, so even, even things like that can help us think about uh, the background information we need from the author um, in that, in that particular way. And, and, and in some sense, just the concept of canon and the fact that these writings have been collected together make up for the fact, or not necessarily make up for the fact, but uh, accommodate and compensate for some of these um, historical realities that would that we would need to do if we didn't uh, read these texts within the context of the collection. And so, I think dating is a is an uh, example as well. So if you're reading a collection with the book of Acts, then you actually have been given, um, you've been given this a, a wonderfully uh, extensive uh, framework for reading almost the entire New Testament. Right. Um, so thinking about the implications of the narrative text. Uh, and so the, the Pentateuch does this for the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, the Gospels and Acts do this for uh, the shape of the New Testament. And so uh, part of the background information discussion, I think, is is not neglecting how big of a gift uh, the shape and contours of our canon actually uh, are. Um, yeah. yeah, that's I good. Did, l- last year I was reading a book on, there's a new book on the dating of the uh, New Testament documents. Mm. But I told, I would tell my students that I was, uh, been reading a book on dating mm. uh, and they were interested until they found out the dating of ancient papyri, you know, ancient uh, documents. So no, not, no. not as exciting as the, <laughs> at the Baptist College Mixer when you're, when you clarify that the book on dating, uh, you know, no new reading group was born out of it. Nothing. Yeah, no, oh no. man! But I do. I, I am willing to give some relationship advice. Yeah. But, uh, not yeah. from that book. Yeah. Well, here we are. 
Uh, okay, so I I will use uh, an example with my students sometime to to try to point up the issue about and, and I'll use Pharaoh right. So um, mm-hmm. Moses has provided us with um, divinely inspired uh, rendering of what happened with the Exodus, and it's very much angled. And so I try to get them to get out of the mode of of thinking if I could just have this three sixty view kind of video almost of what happened at the Exodus or any historical event, um, but specifically the Exodus, if I could just get that, then maybe I could, you know, interpret the, uh, the event right or, or whatever. And I, and I mm-hmm. kind of push on them a little bit and go, well, let's just say, uh, Pharaoh, do you think Pharaoh, though he was there, do you think that he would receive and accept like, yeah, this is exactly how this went. Would he accept the interpretation, um, that, yeah. that Moses has made under the inspiration of God? Um, yeah. Any, any examples like that, that you have where it kind of points up this issue, um, of, of just what, what, what's at stake here and, and how, um, the composition of a text, a biblical text, uh, isn't the same as just reconstructing. If I could just reconstruct everything behind it, then I've got it. Like, what, what do you think? Right. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question because, um, even, even reading the Exodus narrative when, um, from, Moses is Moses and Aaron's perspective. The Exodus is uh, Yahweh's uh, deliverance of his people and Pharaoh's. The question that demands an Exodus is who is Yahweh, right? right. Yeah. The whole, the whole point of these uh, narratives. So thinking about it's a, a dueling interpretations right. of the events that are happening. Um, so as biblical readers, what we're always faced with, especially in narrative is the, the narration and interpretation of Israel's uh, history. Um, we've thought about, we've talked before about uh, John Salheimer's distinction between text and event yeah. as a helpful, as a helpful um, reorienting to just the basic question of uh, what is it that I'm reading or what is it that I'm seeking to gain? Um, is it um, understanding everything about a biblical event like the Exodus or uh, the portrayal of this event yeah. uh, in the biblical text. Um, so I think that's a helpful, uh, helpful uh, concept or tool to reorient us to uh, ask the question, what is it that we are after? Our job is not to comprehend the significance of a historical event in Israel's history or to make, even to make sense of it or to connect it to God's purpose in the world because the biblical authors have already done this. Right. And our job as readers to, is to take into account their narration and theological interpretation of something like, uh, something like the Exodus. And so I think that's a great example because when you're thinking about how do you get the perspective that God is mighty to save um, from the Exodus event, um, and in many ways, the, we as readers certainly get that from Exodus 15, uh, the Miriam song, the song of Moses that is interpreting uh, these events. The same thing, of, I think the big picture thing, the two big events in the Old Testament are the exile or the Exodus and the exile, um, things that are that the prophets and poets of Israel are identifying as both salvation and judgment, Mm -hmm. sometimes for Israel, sometimes for the nations. Um, Whereas a lot of the biblical narratives are experiencing dueling interpretations of what God is doing in history. So like when Jeremiah is standing uh, at his temple sermon, uh, 
you know, the false prophets are those who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. You know, they're say they're pointing to Jeremiah saying judgment is coming. The beast of Babylon is coming. And uh, the false prophet is pointing to the temple and pointing to, um, you know, something else that's standing the fact that we are uh, God's people. Jeremiah is interpreting that uh, very differently. Right. Um, so you're seeing the, example, yeah. seeing the difference between uh, those those two things. A specific example, uh, for example, in the book of Kings, uh, the relationship between Omri and Ahab, uh, mm-hmm. this is one of the ones I like to go to because yeah. um, Omri uh, is, in terms of geopolitical significance, he establishes the capital um, uh, at Samaria. He uh, broaches uh, some uh, strategic uh, alliances. And some of our extra biblical um some of our extra biblical uh, verification of uh, our, our references to Israel and um, uh, some of the, in the ancient Near East refer to Israel as the house of Omri. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of like the, the things that he does, Omri is really significant, but in, uh, in the book of Kings, he only gets like six or seven verses mm-hmm. and Ahab, his son gets chapter after chapter after chapter. When we get later into long time into Israel's history later, we're still talking about Ahab. And one of the reasons of course, is that uh, Ahab is like institutionalizing idolatry and he is um, uh, warring against the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Um, And so uh, that tells us something about the author of Kings's purpose um, he's telling us a story not only about how Israel established themselves politically, but um, he's explaining the exile. How did the exile happen, and what hope is there to return from exile afterwards? Um, and so we can think about the there is a historical uh, purpose to the books of the Bible, but uh, there's a prevailing and pervasive theological point right. that the biblical authors are making. Right. Yeah. I think that's an interesting example. No, I think so. And you're touching on, I I think the default, um, at least like kind of Western English speaking crowd, their default is to read it first as historical because it's behind them. And so they have Mm -hmm. to get, it does get at the ontology of scripture that you just referenced. It's actually first and foremost theological, right? And so there is going to be different Mm -hmm. angles. Um, I, I'm preparing to, to preach through the book of Ruth and, and was considering even our conversation that we were going to have and just thought significantly about chapter one. This is the one I was working on this morning. But chapter one, you have 10 plus years, multiple years referenced in the first five verses. There's 22 verses, I think. Uh, first five verses is just zooming and, and significant plays, uh, big deal about there's a famine in the land with Bethlehem. The house of bread has no bread. There's this irony going on. Elimelech is my God is king. But but he's not acting like God is king. They're receiving every judgment of Deuteronomy 28. There's They're not having children. People are dying. There's a famine, this sort of thing. And it's just five verses. It's just packed tight. Right. And then the narrative slows down in verses 6 through 22, where it's discussing one a couple days 
Uh, I mean, it's just, and, and not even, it's just basically one long conversation, um, between Ruth and Naomi. And you're getting an insight into what the author is wanting to convey. Like he, uh, he, uh, he, right. he mentions or he uses Naomi's words, uh, to, um, to say, uh, Orpah goes back to her gods, the gods of Moab and, he doesn't spend any time on on what what we could find and reconstruct is hey that he's referencing a pantheon of Moabite gods, Kamosh and and child mm-hmm. sacrifice. All this stuff stands behind that. But the point it's not that that doesn't matter, but rather the emphasis in the text, at least, is um, on the allegiance that's that's warring at this moment, right? And so to right. to spend all of our time um, not doing what the author was doing of like moving really quickly through one section and then slowing down in this section to prop up what's happening in two, three, and four. Um, it, we're missing the, you know, kind of the boat a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, you're touching yeah. on huge parts here. Um, what about genre? So we we were talking about the Exodus. We're talking about um, uh, another narrative in Ruth. You're even talking about Omri and Ahab. These are all narrative texts. Does genre play in, into this? Um, and and I'll, I'll kind of give my or show my cards a little bit. Like I have found sure. the epistles to to backgrounds to be more significant there that I end up having a few more holes in um, the text itself for, for lack of better terms. Like I, there's things that mm-hmm. I may, uh, like you, you mentioned Ephesians a little while ago. If I'm just zooming in and, and, and kind of parachuting into this text, I, there's a little bit that I have to work to fill out a little bit more so than in Ruth, not that I'm you know just immediately capable in the backgrounds of, of what's happening during the time of the judges, but rather right. he is supplying you with things that he wants you to know so you can keep moving along versus the epistles. So how does genre play into the backgrounds discussion? Does it matter? Uh, What have you found to be the case? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I think that's one of the things that we grapple with as well. We're thinking about these global issues, but then when we go to a particular text, we kind of run into some issues. Um, Like even what we're talking about, like the book of Kings is one thing. Um, because we're thinking, oh, within the book of Kings, there's some, uh, there's a framework established here. So a lengthy narrative, you know, you think about background information in a particular way versus a brief narrative, which is crying out to be contextualized either in like where are we at in history to understand the small story. Um, so the fact that the author points us to the time of judges and that the author mentions David as the last little bit of genealogy in the book right give us a huge uh point of contact um and but when we're thinking about a maybe a proverb or a psalm or an epistle um in some ways i think the uh some of the things we're talking about still apply but i think this is where the concept or of canon helps right um so we don't have to uh we don't have to act like we're only we only have uh, Philemon when we're reading right. uh, yeah. in this letter because we don't we have we have a collection of letters uh, uh-huh. from Paul. Uh, we don't have to act like we don't have the rest of the Psalms when we're reading a psalm a psalm about exile or a song about a uh, psalm about uh, Exodus. So just thinking about the way that the shape of the Book of Psalms helps us understand uh, what's going on in a particular psalm or the way that. Uh, a Pauline collection of letters helps us understand um, the types of things, uh, the types of orienting starting points that we need to understand a, a given letter. 
So I think the concept of canon guards both unity and diversity, and at least we don't want to let it steamroll uh, the particularities of you know Paul's letter to the Ephesians or Paul's letter to the Colossians. But even thinking within the collection of Paul's letters, he's telling us quite a bit about the historical context through the letter itself as we find out like something like Colossians that he's never visited the Colossians. Right. Uh, but someone has told him about that he's in prison. Um, so we have a, we even call them the prison epistles. Um, so thinking about Paul's um, situation as being really important for understanding his message, um, that kind of brings me back to the historical background minimalism point mm-hmm. like there there you do need a um framework to understand any ancient text but thinking about uh and sometimes there seems to be or there's uh posited a big gap between in historical distance here we are as contemporary readers here's the ancient author writing a letter to an ancient community and seeing that uh and that huge historical gap being something that we is so difficult to cross that we need all of these extraneous tools or, or methods. Uh, but this is one of the uh, the effects of text is that part of what has leaped that gap is the medium of writing. So we already see that in the um, Paul's letters. He's not able to get to Colossi or these because uh, he's in prison he's literally not able to go anywhere and yet the uh, the church is receiving a message uh, from uh, Paul so in some ways there's some specific particularities uh, to Paul's letters that we have to take into account and that's where that basic historical orientation you know that Ephesus is not the same as Rome right you need to know that that and that's going to make help you make sense of uh, something that knowing that Ephesus is a big, big city uh, versus, you know, a rural bumpkin uh, uh, backwater city, you right. know, thinking about, um, or that they're around the Mediterranean world. So some of those things um, are those orienting starting points. Um, but uh, a genre like an epistle um, is still going to give you uh, a purpose is going, there's still going to be a textual uh, development of what Paul is seeking to get across, even as he's addressing specific situations. So th- this is where, you know, there's a lot of debate and divide among evangelicals with shared commitments about how much of a particular historical situation uh, is needed. Uh, and I think that the use of historical background is probably necessary and warranted in uh, isolated cases for right. sure. Yeah. Uh, but I would still want these larger principles of an author's textual attention, uh, intent in a particular communication, the, uh, the help that we get from collection and canon and the, um, the assistance we get from the narrative text that are included in every part of the canon, um, as guides to the universe of discourse um, so that we don't get um, swept away as we uh, swirl around the internet of the cultural encyclopedia, because that that rabbit trail right. can go on forever, and it's easy to get to lose sight of that communication, even in a in an epistle. Um, so I think those are some of the things that um, 
that I, so all that to say, I, I agree that particular genres require, you know, comparative work that can only be done with historical study. Um, but that there's, there's a lot of resources that we have at our disposal in the collection of the canon that we sometimes uh, neglect or we just take for granted how much help they're already giving us. Yeah, that's good. Well, as we uh, start wrapping up, I'm, I'm just uh, going to point up two ideas for the for the listener. One is um, you mentioned Sailhammer a little bit earlier in his idea, um, which was really, for me, a very helpful. Uh, it, it put a lot of sense to some things that I was wrestling with a number of years ago where his, his idea of a, the difference in a text and an event. Um, and I would just encourage all the listeners to get as much uh, Sailhammer in their diet as they possibly can. Um, and, and I I, I'm yeah like a, a total fan fan fanboy on that front. So um, anyway, so would encourage that. The other thing that I found helpful over the years um, has been to really always be reading backgrounds myself. So whether that's Pritchard's like Annette or uh, ancient Near Eastern texts or Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever it may be, I try to always be swimming just in those waters to understand what's happening. But then I'm much more, as, as you've said, Chad, much more minimal when I'm on that text itself, like whatever the biblical passage is or paper mm-hmm. I'm trying to write or whatever chapter of a book or something, I'm going to be a little more minimal there, but I have that working in the, in the back of my head like all the time so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm aware of what's happening and trying to span these centuries and and I tend to find myself more so in the Old Testament in my writing and, and lectures and those sorts of things so I'm, I'm even I'm just up against a lot right I mean multiple cultures yeah. all of that so I'm always reading that stuff but then I try to let it be more minimal whenever I'm uh, working through a text so that's just for mm-hmm. the crowd all right so the last question here is uh, we do a segment just called Books in Your Bag. And so, Chad, what are you, what books have been in your bad met, bag, metaphorically speaking? What have you been reading through? Um, what have you been, yeah, uh, working through, be at work or just enjoyment, um, that sort of stuff? Um, sure, yeah. Um, so for, uh, I always like um, reading through some biblical theology books. I had read, I'd worked through uh, Michael Morales's uh book on Leviticus nice. and, yeah. um, and I, but I'd never read it all the way through. So I recently read that through. It's a really cool, um, uh, way of understanding, uh, the importance and function of Leviticus, which is a, you know, everybody's favorite, uh, chapter book of the Bible. Yeah. So that was helpful. <laughs> yep. Um, and then also I read a book on the ECB and Canon tables. Nice. Um, that just came out with Oxford. So as you can tell, I'm really good at, I'm really good at parties. So yeah. really interesting. <laughs> um, and then my daughter, um, asked me to read uh, a book called the book thief. Oh um, yeah. So I'm reading that. Uh, it's a really interesting book about, uh, World War, World War two. And, um, it's like written from the perspective of a death personified. Mm. Uh, so it's really, it's really interesting. It's not, not as dark as it sounds, but, um, so anyway, so I, I'm reading that so I can chat with her about it. Nice. Well, good. Okay, brother. Well, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Biblical Theology Podcast. And uh, yeah, we just pray blessings uh, over your ministry there at Cedarville. And and, I'm thankful for you and your willingness to come on and and your work. And and we just encourage uh, all the listeners to to get a hold of your stuff, especially on Canon. And um, I listened to one of your sermons on Hebrews uh, on YouTube so they can they can catch you there as well. So I'm thankful for you being on, brother. 
Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate you letting me ramble on a little bit. No, that's great. Thank you. All right. This podcast is a product of Credo Magazine. For more resources like this, visit credomag.com. The theme song for the Biblical Theology Podcast is Space Cadet by Philanthropy and Sleepy Fish, provided courtesy of Chill Hop Music. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Sam Beerig and produced by Ben Van Holstein.